Marcus Schindler is my best friend. We began exchanging stories in college over beers and talking about the world and the way we perceived it. We would, however, go our separate ways, forging wildly different paths, but still remaining fast friends. Now Marcus spends much of his time in current and former conflict zones, dealing with unexploded remnants of war. In today's episode, we dive into philosophy, the field of NGO work, the war in Afghanistan that has just ended, and the war in Ukraine that is now just getting underway. I do hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey Marcus, welcome to my podcast. Remy, thanks. It's a pleasure to be on. <laughs> For the benefit of the listeners, do you mind introducing yourself and you know what you do? Sure. So my name is Marcus Schindler and um, I work with a non-government organization. It's called the Swiss Foundation for Mine Action. Um, and we're working in the field of uh, well, mine action, which is working with explosive remnants of war and, and removing the threats from, from the population. So I'm currently based in, in northern Iraq, uh, but I've worked in the Philippines for a couple of years uh, and, and studied there for some time and, and, uh, and met Remy. <laughs> <laughs> The most dishonorable part of your journey, I'm sure. Um, Definitely not. <laughs> well, uh, w- there's one small thing that um, you know I know about you that you decided to leave out, and uh, it's probably due to shame. But uh, you began that this long journey all over the world by taking a degree in philosophy, right? <laughs> shame. Um, what are you talking about? <laughs> so, if 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 you don't mind my asking, what drew you into philosophy? Hmm. So it, it really started in high school when, when we started like discussing, like they started introducing philosophy in, in some of the classes and, and I had an actual class in philosophy and I was always interested in, in history and, and the, the humanities in general and I, I just found that philosophy is really tying everything together in, in such an interesting way because you look at like a, a sort of a meta perspective and you, you discuss things in a, like on a broad variety of things from a very theoretical perspective and that just always fascinated me i guess I'm, i just love to you know be a philosopher and and uh, uh, <laughs> you know discuss very theoretical things over a pint or two so that that uh, really drew me into it and it was interesting when i when i told people that i was going to study philosophy you know like the reactions that people were having was like well what are you going to do with that and well, what what does a philosopher do and I kept on telling people that this is not really something I'm interested in right now. I, ju- I just want to study it because I'm interested and I'm going to sort out what to do with it later. Uh, well, it was a bit naive at the time, but uh, I don't regret it at all. Mm. So, well, philosophy is fairly broad, though. So, like, what specific aspects of it um, did you particularly enjoy hmm. uh, like, well, while you were studying it? Yeah. So, I, I really, the first philosopher that I that I read intentionally uh, was was Friedrich Nietzsche I read uh, I started uh, maybe it was not the, the best idea but I started by reading um, those uh, those book um, Zarathustra also sprach, yeah also sprach Zarathustra. He's a, um, I mean that that oh, it covers a lot of, of different topics but at the time what what really drew me into it was mostly uh, ethics, like more of philosophy. So that's that's what I then began to to invest uh, a lot of m- my time in, and like really in, in Germany, you can 
when you study philosophy, you, you have a lot of liberty to to select the courses you're interested in. So I did a lot of courses on, on ethics and also some on on, Nicol uh, <clears throat> on Nietzsche in particular. And uh, yeah, it never really it never really left me my fascination. I've probably developed a little more of a critical stance than than I had when I was younger. But uh, yeah, his his well, ethics and his critique of of ethics and met metaphysics is, is still something that um, yeah fascinates me to this day. Well, if if you don't mind, for the benefit of the listeners who are like are relatively uninitiated, what are some of the foundational ideas of Nietzsche and like what does he represent as a thinker in philosophy? Okay, well Nietzsche is probably you could say the philosopher who who takes a hammer uh, to philosophy. I mean, you know, it's when you start talking about philosophy, it's like the the issue is always that what is the question? What is philosophy really? And the question is as old as philosophy itself. So, um, so I just I just go ahead and, and tell you what I think um, philosophy is about, at least in a huge part. And it's the um, it's it's to look at arguments or or to look at uh, statements and to try to discern what are the hidden or or obvious assumptions behind it, and then to look are these assumptions actually accurate or can we make these assumptions or or if not, what would be a more accurate assumption? And how would it then, uh, what, what would be the impact on, on the statement or on the argument? And Nietzsche, I think, is uh, in that sense more of a philosopher than a lot of other people because he really, he um, he goes ahead and, and really crushes a lot of the assumptions, hidden assumptions and uh, that, that were around in philosophy before him and, and at the time. So he's uh, he's, very remarkable in that. Uh, I think in a lot of instances he went a little, a little too far, or, or maybe introduced assumptions of his own that that weren't fully justified. But um, his his crushing power is definitely something that uh, I admire a lot. So, to all right, let me think about um, some of his fundamental statements. Um, well, he, he's, wasn't he the one who said God is dead? Or <laughs> Oh yeah, that is that is a, a very good one. Uh, that's that's one of my my, my favorite ones. Um, so he said, "God is that." Uh, more importantly, he says, um, "We killed God." Uh, that that is, I think, uh, more to the point. So essentially, Nietzsche lived at a time when when science took off. Yeah, uh, um, Charles Darwin had developed the the theory of evolution at the time. Um, the the um, Industrial revolution and, and the scientific revolutions were, were going about, and uh, he noticed in his environment that that um, religion was in a, in a way on a decline. Um, now, and and with it, metaphysics and metaphysics is really um, the question about truth, like what is what is truth, and um, how can we how can we determine what what truth is, like what what approach to take and all these things and Nietzsche said well if there's if there's no religion if there's no God then there can't be that there's no foundation for truth there can't be so so um, and, and that's just a descriptive thing that's not that's not a normative thing he's not saying it it shouldn't be it it just if there's no God then there can't be any absolute truth so he saw that as a very problematic thing he said well if there is no absolute truth, then then we will be living in, in nihilism because there's no good, there's no bad, there's there's nothing. Anybody can do whatever they want, and there's nothing wrong with it because because it's, it's 
yeah, it, because it can't be wrong because there's no truth. So without truth, how could it be wrong? So what he really tried to do was to essentially develop a system or well, system probably wouldn't be the right term, but a, a way of overcoming this, this meaninglessness. Um, so he introduced this notion of the, uh, he calls it Übermensch, um, the idea that, that the individual should, and he was not exactly holistic on this uh, approach, so not every individual, but the strong, strong willed individual should come up with their own uh, notions of, of truth and their own morality. That, that was essentially his solution to overcome nihilism and, and the end of the world. Um, so when he said God is dead, uh, like, yeah, that's, that's a statement he made. It's, it's a very crass statement and, and all, but um, really what he was trying to say is um, that now that, now that we're beginning to abandon religion and abandon God, we have to realize what that actually means. Uh, and we have to find a cure to, to the problem that we will encounter. Now, some people would say <laughs> that, uh, I don't know, having a Netflix account and uh, access to YouTube is a, is a good way of overcoming uh, meaninglessness <laughs> by, you know, just dumping and uh, binge watching, I don't know, Breaking Bad or something. Nietzsche didn't know about these solutions, so I guess it's fairly justified okay. that he tried to come up with something else. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it's very poignant that I asked you this question after a statement like that. Um, what practical value does philosophy bring to the world in a day and age of like hyper-specialization? Because of hmm. the various intellectual dip disciplines, philosophy is the one that's defined most broadly. It is uh, the, the love of uh, thinking, right? Essentially at its core, right? And so like... Yeah, that's something that honestly, like a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their head around. Like, what what value do, do you bring into the world as someone with a background in philosophy? Okay. Well, first of all, philosophy is also a field that is ultra specialized. Like, if you if you look really into like academia into into papers that are being published, I mean, the, the just a salad of of uh, um, Latin terms and like, like the the specialization of like subfields within subfields in in like obscure fields of of uh, I don't know metaphysics or or epistemology that it's just uh, philosophy is a very specialized uh, well science might might be a difficult term but it's a very specialized field of inquiry um, itself and a lot of a lot of the discussions that are being held in my opinion in the academic field are really held for the benefit. Of the academia, there's not really much of that getting out of uh, the philosophical journals and uh, and the halls in university, and that is something that always bugged me as a student. I I often felt like, well, what, why are we discussing that, and, and what impact is it going to have? Um, of course, there are some public intellectuals that are that are quite quite good at um, bringing philosophical thoughts out out into the open. Not all of them are professional philosophers or academic philosophers. Um, some are, um, but yeah, it's it's definitely a legitimate question and uh, something that I even discussed with my philosophy professors, who who weren't all too happy about me asking these uh, uh, blasphemous uh, questions. Um, I I think there are some fields where where philosophy is really relevant, um, and I think that's particularly the case with uh, social science. You know, as I said earlier, philosophy really looks into the the hidden assumptions that we make 
in in outlining our arguments. Um, and in social science, you you just have to work with uh, with assumptions. And you know, it's not like natural science where you can definitively prove uh, something using the formulas that that have been uh, developed and discovered. In social science, you you have to make certain assumptions, and then um, and then your results won't be exact anyways. So I think in that field, particularly when it comes to sociology, economics, I think is a big one um, there to, to really look at what is being taught and what, what are the theories and what are the theories built on? And, and is that really, um, is, that, is that the only way of looking at things or what, what could be wrong with these assumptions? Um, that, that I think is, is very useful because you don't, like, like in natural science, in social science, you don't have these exact outcomes. So you can't say, well, my theory is right because it always works. Yeah, in natural science, you, if, you, if you know the speed of an object uh, in, in space, you, you know where it's going to be in a certain amount of time. But in social science, you just don't have that. So to a certain extent, you can't just look at the results and then say, well, I'm, I'm right, this is how it works. Because in social science, it doesn't work all the time. No theory in social science works all the time. So, so you have to look at the beginning also. You, look, you have to look at the steps, how you got there. And there, I think philosophy is making important contributions. Mm. Well, actually, that's one of those things that I do with whenever I have like a, a very difficult uh, real world problem that I want to confront. I usually there's this there's this YouTube uh, channel I look up all the time. I think it's called Carefree Wandering. There's like a philosophy professor in Macau and he just um, muses for like 30 minutes on the issues of the day and articulates his points uh -huh. on them and the implicit assumptions of the sides that are taken on the issue. And I, what I always notice is that the articulation of the issues of someone who comes from a background in philosophy where, where they don't take anything for granted often leads to a very balanced view. Some of the things that uh, he's discussed, I'll actually ask your opinion on later, such as the Afghanistan and Ukraine situation. Hmm. But before we get to those very juicy, juicy topics, um, you actually went, so we actually spent about a semester together as, when you were an exchange student at the end. We would get drunk every weekend. And you left the Philippines, <laughs> right? Uh, and then you came yes. back, right? So what brought you back to the Philippines? <laughs> well, I'm only explaining that for the benefit of the listeners because you should know very well um, that uh, when I was an exchange student in the Philippines, I uh, met my wonderful uh, now wife, uh, who uh, who I met uh, with you as my wingman, <laughs> uh, doing a wonderful job uh, masking my insecurities. <laughs> uh, so yes, that's uh, I think that's that would be the most correct answer. I I left the Philippines to go back to finish my finish my bachelor's degree, and then I started a master's degree. And as part of that degree, we were given the choice whether to do a theoretical semester or a practical semester of doing internships. So. I chose that and, and went back to the Philippines to do an internship uh, with uh, the Makati Business Club's Integrity Initiative. So I was, I was, my master was basically on economic ethics. So that seemed like a like a good uh, good way to go. And uh, so yeah, I came back to the Philippines for that. There's not much money in ethics in business, though. <laughs> well, neither in philosophy. So I, I knew I knew that already. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so you 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 spent a very was this was the stint with the Makati Business Club very short or like were you, were you there for a substantial amount of time? Uh, so it was an internship and and it was supposed to last for six months, but I think after about three or four months, I I actually quit. Um, I well, I don't know if interns can resign, but I, I quit anyways. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
and then, and then, it, it was uh, <laughs> but uh, and then yeah. what did you go ahead go ahead go ahead, sorry yeah. i'm interrupting you go ahead no, <laughs> no worries. Uh, it just it, it wasn't my uh it, it was different than, than what i thought it would be um so I, I was studying business ethics at the time and economic ethics and, and that was exactly what this integrity initiative was about i don't i don't know if it still existed this was almost 10 years ago so um maybe not um i guess but i just i just didn't really agree with the theoretical foundation of of what they were trying to do even though what they were trying to do was noble and, and great and important work but I, I thought that um at the time that they just went about it the, the wrong way but of course as an intern you're not going to go to to the boss of uh, of a big project and going to tell him that you think he's wrong um so i just uh, i just stayed on and also my work wasn't overly exciting i mean they, they just didn't really need me they just hired me i don't know out of pity or, or <laughs> compassion or something and uh so it, i just it it wasn't it wasn't uh exactly as i envisioned it so yeah i decided to to discontinue it but then of course i needed a new internship because uh, i needed to produce a final report on on a, a four or six month internship that i just didn't have so i needed to look for something else mm -hmm. and what was that uh, something else what did you find so during my rather unfulfilling first internship uh, the, the one good thing that came out of it was that I, now i knew what i don't want to do which often also is uh, actually um quite quite a useful thing to to realize because at the time i was fully on the like business ethics uh, track and, and stuff and i just realized that um i wasn't as passionate about it as as i thought i would be so i was wondering like what 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 would i be interested in and i really started wrecking my brain and i was looking at the things that i read in the in the newspapers the, the articles that interest me the the books i read and i realized that i'm i'm a lot more interested in in, in politics and in uh, um, peace uh, peace topics and and these sorts of things so i I managed to get an internship with an organization called South South Network for Non-State Armed Group Engagement. It was a bit of a mouthful, but uh, but that was that was uh, quite something. That was uh, definitely uh, uh, th that's when I realized yeah this is this is a lot more what I'm interested in. Um, mm. So this organization was was based in Cotabato City at the time, and and I or at least their Philippine uh, arm, and and I was in Manila with uh, with my girlfriend at the time now wife and we had a red contract and everything so and anyways i thought as a as a foreigner going to you know uh, western mindanao i'm i'm not gonna get out there alive so i i asked them if i could work for manila and, and they wouldn't they didn't mind and so i wrote a lot of policy papers and, and that sort of stuff um so it was it was great and fun anyways and i they did manage to get me down to cotabato city once for a training um, with another organization, the, uh, the Swiss Foundation for Mine Action, which I'm still working with. And, and a few months later, while I was already back in Germany, they offered me uh, a job down in Cotabato. And having then been there and known that or, or learned that it is uh, not quite as it is portrayed in, <laughs> in the media and uh, among a lot of my Filipino friends as well, I, I accepted and, uh, and went down and it, uh, started working there. Mm. Uh, well, actually, that's strange that you, you find yourself uh, disgusted a little bit by uh, advocating on behalf of business because a lot of what I do now is advocating on behalf of business. And man, it is rough, dude. Like, it's really hard to build consensus when there's like a profit motive. Like, 
it's gotten to a point where I'm being asked to comment on like whether or not people should, uh, whether or not we should be permitted to sell non-iodized salt. And yeah, I really get where you're coming from when you say, oh, it's really hard <laughs> to build up a passion for this. But uh, the thing with me is that my strengths are aligned with it. So like I can, I can kind of parse the regulation. So, and this is probably an area where I could conceivably yeah. do more good because I have like a higher tolerance for boring bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the nitty gritty of it uh, can be, can be quite dull, obviously, but I mean, the, what, what did and, and still does interest me is uh, like the, the theoretical foundation of it. And that's, that's what I just didn't really, didn't really agree with at the time. I mean, I think, yes, of course, corporations, um, they, they seek profit and, and that's, that's why they're there. That's the only reason why they're there. I mean, of course there are social enterprises and, and all that, but by and large, if an organization or if, if a business can make money, then, then it's not a business and it's not going to be around for long. That's, that's uh, the morale of the story and um, this notion that that businesses are like sort of moral actors or should be moral actors that that uh, like what we're seeing now with the Ukraine with all these companies um, cutting cutting ties with Russia and, and all that uh, I mean I just find it wrong to to assume that a company is uh, has any moral responsibilities I think we should I mean I find it great that companies act in a moral way but they should do so because we set up a system that incentivizes them to do that or that punishes them if, if they do something wrong. Like that's why we have laws. That's why you can't just, you know, pollute rivers and, and stuff, but, but it should come like the notion that it should come from, from a company in, in, wanting to act morally is just something that I find difficult to comprehend. It's one of those things though, like, and I, I think that it only really exists at that very high level where you have this, where you have these multi-billionaires who like look who who are concerned with their images and they want to look good and so these paradigms kind of crop up and like i have to remind people constantly like sometimes i'm in meetings and then they say oh you know what we should do we should form like a political organization and then get representation because the political system in the philippines permits that and then uh, someone literally leaned over to me and said paano naman yun attorney how will we do that attorney like you will not win any votes i mean you're going to be driving around in your bmw and i have to i have to remind them that hey like i'm not i'm not these guys who you're accustomed to working with i'm i'm mm. not some multi-billionaire who's concerned with his ego like i'm actually concerned with what the law says and how that affects like competitiveness in the economy and yeah uh mm. i get where you're coming from because these are some uh, some of the people i interact with they come from that background where like business is the solution and like business is moral and it it, it it's particularly poignant because um we have like a group chat where you know a, a, a large part of the reason why like say for example the vaccinations were so quickly deployed in the philippines does was largely because businessmen were like, we want to deploy the vaccine. And for me, like, and then like, we put it up on a pedestal as if that's somehow a moral responsibility. But we, I guess we have to confront also that I think a large part of the motivation was the profit incentive of not having to deal with the restrictions as long. But that's my mm. personal read on it, right? I don't think it came from a place of entirely benevolent concern for society, if I'm being perfectly <laughs> honest. Um, uh, they, it, I mean, and, and, and even if it did, I mean, that, that would be great, but what, what I'm trying to get at is that it, it's just not, it's just not a good system to rely on the, on the benevolence of, of companies because 
ethics, and, and that's, sorry to drag this back into philosophy, but to me, ethics is, is a, a matter that, that is being discussed between human beings and, and nothing else. So companies just don't feature in this, in this concept and the system for me. So yeah, there might be people, there might be companies, there might be business uh, owners or, or who, who are doing things out of the goodness of their hearts. And, and that's great. But we can't rely on that. That's not that's not going to make a, a functional system where where we really see across the board um, companies doing the right thing. I think we need to incentivize companies to do the right thing, and then and then if some do it out of the goodness of their heart, fine, whatever, <laughs> great. But as long as they do it, yeah. But I think that I think that's unique to the Philippines. You know, like how even a lot of the law and order, like the force for law and order in the Philippines comes from the private sector. Like we don't have a policeman on every corner, but we sure as shit have a like security guard on every corner, if you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. like, that was, that's, that's one of the <laughs> things that like foreigners are quick to point out. Why does every store here have a security guard? And I'm like, well, I mean, yeah. you know, nobody wants like to have their store window bashed in and like looters to come in. So that's why they have a security guard and everyone's safer for it. Uh, there's a there's a discussion to be had though like that particular economic arrangement is the most efficient or the most uh, restorative of our faith in our institutions but uh, I'll leave that aside uh, if I can though I would take you to one topic what was Mindanao like man oh well very different from how it was portrayed to me that's for sure uh, so I was I, I lived for well on and off but but for a pretty long time in Cotabato city in uh, like so it's the head of or the, the capital of what was then the ARMM, which is now uh, Barm, um, and it, it was great. It was really it was wonderful. I had a wonderful time. Um, it was yeah, people are friendly. I, I never encountered any any issues. Um, it was perfectly safe. Uh, yes, there are issues. I'm, I'm not gonna lie. Uh, there are issues, but I mean, for, for me personally, as a foreigner who is not involved in in like maybe family feuding or in, in like politics or in like i don't know drug trade and these sorts of things i'm i felt like i can walk the street any day any any day or time of the day anywhere people will be will be nice and friendly and helpful so i i had a wonderful time really mm. to i mean just the living there mm. yeah well i really enjoyed it well you know, Marcus, one of the things that's particularly interesting about you is that you you have like a really unique perspective of the Philippines because I think you've experienced the length and breadth of like the social strata that exists in the Philippines. You <laughs> you started out in um, Quezon City when we met up uh, in college, and then you 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 went to the Makati Business Club, which it doesn't get any ritzier than that, my friend. And then <laughs> and then you said screw this i'm not interested and then decided to go to cotabato city right <laughs> so you you have a particularly good you have a particularly unique vantage point so i guess and this is a very broad question and i understand if uh you know you 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 might you you might not have a set answer what is your opinion of the philippines man just from like whatever angle comes hmm. to mind politically the people whatever sure well no i don't have a set answer for that and i think as a foreigner, uh, please accept my disclaimer that uh, that this is not a normative uh, statement. I'm, I'm I'm just expressing my opinion. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings um, because I know uh, Filipinos are like as much as they accept foreigners, but they don't really love uh, foreigners to uh, tell them about their country. So, <laughs> and I understand <laughs> that very well, uh, and I don't I don't mean to. Um, well, 
obviously I love the Philippines. Um, my my wife is from the Philippines. I'm I'm gonna uh, half my heart is always in the Philippines. So every day we talk about um, like living in the Philippines and, and settling down in the Philippines one day. Um, so yeah, to me it's it's um, it's favorite country in the world for me, and and I love it. Um, politically, I'm I'm no expert, and uh, to be honest, I don't follow everything so much as I did when I lived there, of course. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't really think I can can give any qualified uh, statement that that hasn't already been made, um, especially now that it's uh, election season is coming up, and uh, <laughs> I, I know far too little to to tap into these waters. <laughs> You mean uh, you're not in hundred percent agreement that Bong Bong Marcos is our future supreme leader? Um, well, <laughs> it might turn out that way. It, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure if, if I would be hundred percent comfortable with that. Uh, but then again, it's also not up to me. Uh, so, That's <laughs> trying right, to be very diplomatic foreigner. here. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No. Um, Yes, I, I mean, I remember when when Duterte was was elected, and of course, as a you know, as a liberal uh, Democrat, not not in the American political sense, but in the you know rest of the world sort of sense, um, it yeah, it was quite a shock, uh, and and the the things he said and the things he he did, but actually, really to a large degree, the things he said um, were were very very shocking to me. Uh, at the time, it's just not something I was used to, and of course, when I talk to my friends in in Manila, um, they they share that notion, uh, a lot of them, anyways. Um, but then, of course, I lived in in Mindanao at the time, and people in Mindanao had a very different opinion on these things. And in the beginning, I I had a lot of discussions with with friends um, to yeah, to to just understand where they're coming from, and I was also quite emotional about the topic, of course. Um, you know, when when you hear Duterte speaking about uh, killing drug users like Hitler killed Jews, I mean that's just something as a German that does, uh, yeah, does not go down easily. Um, so I had a lot of discussions, and I I started to understand uh, why people in in different parts of the Philippines and from different walks of life and with, with different like historical experiences also um, take take different stances on so vastly different stances on such topics. So yeah, I understand, I, I learned to understand more that uh, that um, while I might not agree with everything they say, but at least I understand more where they're coming from. And that, that was under Duterte now. When, when it comes to the, the current contenders, I, I know far less about them. So yeah, I, I don't think I'm qualified to, <laughs> to go no, into no that. No worries, no worries, man. But yeah, that's something that's like people generally don't realize about our system like of course you spoke to a point of like diversity of opinion and the difference of opinion between and amongst the different dias and uh, the different strata of people that exist in the philippines but i guess like me because i interact with the regulations now right uh, very heavily hmm. I, you know I, I i have the good fortune of having a government position which is well it's not it's not compensated it's largely honorary but like I'm a lawyer, so I fill the role well. It, I'm something called the vice chair for uh, the networking committee of the legislative advocacy monitoring. And so I know, right? Ooh, bureaucracy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the title is so long. Um, no, yeah. but uh, 
I have to comment on the laws that come out of Congress, and a lot of these laws were certified and have participation in by uh, key people of Duterte. And like I look at the laws, and they're very well structured. They encourage competition. Um, they 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 fix the loopholes in the tax system. Uh, they 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 welcome the entry of foreign investment. They liberalize the economy. Uh, and so these are all things that are good, you know, and like regardless of how much you may or may not like Duterte, right? The presidency uh, is so much more than just the man and the, the government is so much more than just that office, right? And so like so many things can be going right while you are obsessed with looking at what one guy does wrong. Um, and and yeah, this is not a, this is a, not a defense point. of the this is not a defense of the administration. I really don't hmm. I don't I don't want to be I don't want to sound like I'm defending this administration. But um, yeah, I think regardless, whoever wins the the next Philippine election, um, the Philippine government is definitely larger than the man who occupies Malacanang, and the Filipino people are stronger than the government. So uh, at least I, I'm hmm. not too worried for the Philippines. But uh, anyway, Marcus, if I could. Um, take you to uh, a different matter. I want to try to get a better handle on what it is you actually do now. Because you mentioned it uh, sporad- uh, very quickly a while ago where you, where you were talking about how you uh, deal with unexploded ordnance. So do you, do you defuse the bombs? What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe I'll just talk about the, the field in general for a second. So uh, it, it all started pretty much in the, in the 1990s after the Soviet-Afghan war when like Afghanistan was just littered with millions and, and still is to a large degree littered with, with a lot of landmines. And, uh, you know, the war was over, but people went about their business and, and got blown to bits uh, stepping on these old landmines. So the international community and, and international NGOs started started thinking, what can we do about that? So they started forming forming organizations that, that would go and... Um, well, do a, a number of things. One is to to talk to people to explain the dangers to them because that's one of the key concerns is that people don't actually either they don't know where dangers are or more often even they they don't really know that these devices are dangerous or how to identify them these sorts of things. So it's it's now called explosive ordnance risk education, going to communities um, and really like bringing posters and, and giving a presentation to to children in schools or to community members. That's what I, I did in the Philippines or the project that I that I um, contributed to. Um, and then, of course, uh, the, the more long-term solution is to to go to the field and to find the devices and to to diffuse them. Um, I personally do not do that. Very important to, to mention that. Uh, I don't <laughs> want to take any credit for, for this heroic work. Um, I personally don't do that. I'm a, a project manager at the moment. So I spend a lot of my time and uh, very or behind various desks uh, or in meeting rooms, and I'm I'm very content with uh, that sort of uh, distribution of <laughs> of um, tasks. Um, <laughs> so my work now in Iraq is to to work with a local NGO that works in the same field, um, and to basically help them to to get up to the standards of an international. NGO in the field of mine action, so that after this project they could they would have a good chance to attract international funding, because local organizations are well well suited to do the work if they if they come up to the standards and maybe better so than international ones because international ones are a lot more expensive um, 
you have the, the old flights, expat salaries, and all that. So, so the the aim is to nationalize mine action in Iraq. Mm. I'm a little cock in that wheelhouse. So, so what what exotic and ritzy locations do you do this work at? <laughs> uh, ritzy, yeah. So after the Philippines, I had a bit of a stint where I did. Uh, sort of a roving position, so I was working a little bit in Ukraine um, and in in Iraq, and then I started a full-time position again with the same organization in Afghanistan. So that was uh, that was also quite something. Uh, I was there for about a year. Also, again, of course, I'm I'm really not qualified to defuse bombs, and I'm not going to. Just <laughs> highlighting that. Uh, <laughs> yes, so I did that for a year, <laughs> and then. Uh, and then Tajikistan, uh, which is just just neighboring Afghanistan, also for some time, and uh, and then I moved here to Iraq, and I'm here now for quite a bit, a year and a half almost. Mm-hmm. So why yeah. why why do you work in um, what one former U.S. president would call such shithole countries? <laughs> yes, well quoted. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm I'm not gonna. Um, repeat that uh, that awful phrase, uh, but I, I do understand the sentiment that you're <laughs> trying to get across. Uh, <laughs> well, well, of course, unfortunately, uh, my work requires that somebody uh, first came in and and uh, sprayed around explosive ordnance, uh, which is uh, usually a byproduct of uh, warfare. So uh, the end state of uh, of such things is uh, probably often rather ugly. So. So that's that's a short answer, I suppose. <laughs> um, I always really wanted to to live abroad and to work abroad and to to not just visit countries and and you know spend two weeks there or something, but really to understand the culture and, and make friends among the the people there. And so for me, the opportunity to to do this work is, I mean, it's it's incredibly rewarding. Um, to, to help people. I mean, I go to the field, I, I meet the, the families uh, whose land we clear, and this is really something. I mean, this is like when you hear their stories, um, the, the things that they went through, I mean, here in Iraq, it's, it's of course, uh, ISIS times um, that, that people went through. It's, it's just really something that, yeah, you feel like you're actually doing something that's worthwhile and that, that helps people to, um, to survive and to, to live and to, you know, Re-establishes a sense of normalcy. Um, so, so that's great. But I also really just enjoy yeah, living in different places, and and often these places have a worse reputation than than they actually are. As I said earlier, with uh, with Mindanao, I thought I was I was going to get kidnapped or or shot uh, within the first three days, and and four years later, it it broke my heart to leave because uh, it was so so different from from what I was led to believe that it would be. And, and the same is the case with a lot of places. There's so much beauty in these countries that, you know, that's maybe not always measurable through through GDP and, and uh, income distribution, but but by meeting meeting the people and and learning how they live. Mm. So it's yeah. Uh, so actually, we touched on it very quickly, and and I think you you very you very beautifully put it with that these places are really not what the media portrays them to be, and this brings me to, I guess to this is a nice segue to our next topic, 
and I ask you specifically because you spent some time there. What exactly happened in Afghanistan, man? <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm still. Uh, I'm still not quite sure on that myself. Um, I still can't believe uh, the, what happened and, and the way it happened. Um, so, yeah, the, I mean, after the the uh, NATO invasion of, well, it was an American invasion and then followed by a NATO program um, of Afghanistan was well quite a was a bit murkier than than it uh, was portrayed at the time. I mean, um, really, after 9-11, um, pretty much all you would hear in the news was that uh, uh, Osama bin Laden is with the Taliban in Afghanistan, and um, you either give him to us now or we're going to crush you. That's that's what the, the American president said to the Taliban in a nutshell. And in the beginning, they were they were quite defined, but uh, when when the um, you know the the aircraft carriers uh, drew closer. Uh, there was actually a lot a lot more uh, wiggle room, uh, as it turned out. But by then uh, the Americans were not really interested in that anymore. So, I mean, this it all could have could have been avoided to begin with. I believe, anyways. Um, the the Taliban were quite quite open about handing over uh, Osama bin Laden to a, to a Muslim country, which you know, in October, November 2001, would have equated to handing him over to <laughs> to the U.S. because no Muslim country in the world would have stood up against the U.S. and said, no, we're going to keep him. So anyways, um, but what happened, happened. So the Americans uh, invaded Afghanistan and uh, and defeated the, the Taliban. And it all seemed very, very good until uh, the Taliban did what what they were really perfectly suited to do is to stage an insurgency and to uh, keep on pummeling um, the, the newly formed Afghan state and, and the Americans and the, and the Brits and, and all the other countries of, of, uh, of that coalition. Um, I think in 2015 it was when the Americans and, and most countries withdrew their combat forces and kept on like, supporting the Afghan army. And uh, I guess in, in 2021, Everybody just had enough. Uh, I mean, this this was a topic in American politics for such a long time, withdrawing from Afghanistan. Everybody wanted to be that president, but everybody knew if we do that, things are just going to collapse. So Biden, I think, was just the one who said, "Now nah, I'm going to pull the plug and I'm going to take the I'm going to take the hit." Anyways, um, mm -hmm. and it and it turned out exactly as predicted. Uh, it was awful. And uh, I mean, I have I have friends, I have colleagues in Afghanistan, and I was in touch with them during these awful weeks, and uh, yeah, it was devastating, and still is. It's one of those things, though, that um, you know, the United States brings like a unique flavor in their military doctrine. There's like an element of nation building. Like I think it's a holdover of the Marshall Plan, where they went into Europe and they rebuilt Europe up from the ashes, or at least that's how the American hmm. history books will portray it. And then, you know, that real manifest destiny, we're here to help the world, we're here to make the world a better place, um, didn't really apply in the case as, as against insurgencies, because insurgencies you yeah. can't destroy. I think the first taste of America with that phenomenon was Vietnam and more recently, of course, Afghanistan. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's unique, though, because I think like you have to give the U.S. credit, right? Like most people would bomb the place to shit and get out as soon as the objective was done. Uh, hmm. Although, 
arguably the benevolence did more good in this case. I did more bad in this case, don't you think? Well, I mean, the, the original mission was to to capture and, and capture or kill Bin Laden, and uh, it just it just didn't turn out that way. And the Americans were just there and, and looking and turning over every rock. And the, the Taliban were gone, and, and Bin Laden was gone, and and, and they were still there. Uh, of course, they couldn't retreat because then they wouldn't have managed to to say uh, that they accomplished their mission because Bin Laden was was still you know out and about. So. They were kind of stuck there and then figured, well, since we're already here, we might as well <laughs> try something. Um, and I mean, in, in all fairness, that I think they did uh, they did some, well, not they, I mean, Germany was also part of that coalition. I think, uh, I think we did some remarkably good work. Um, we just didn't see it through. There are a lot of people who would say, yeah, you, you can't see that through. That would have never worked. And yeah, possibly, um, possibly not. But... I think, particularly towards the last few years of of this um, of this military, I wasn't really by that time not not even so much an intervention anymore. It was just a military stationing. the The costs of that stationing were so small compared to the amazing advantages that it brought for so many Afghans. And now, yes, we we're, we're saving we're saving some money. We're you know um, sparing some 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 lives i guess but at the cost of of what i mean the taliban are back in power we're we're exactly back at where we were uh, well 21 years ago uh, literally nothing changed uh, afghanistan is is turning i mean the taliban are turning afghanistan back to exactly where it was um, when they left um, people aren't allowed to leave the country anymore uh, schools for women are still are still not fully opened it's yeah, we have literally accomplished nothing now um, versus spending a little bit um, to to maintain all the good that we have created in Afghanistan. Of course, not everything was rosy. There were a lot of things that, that went wrong, a lot of misunderstandings. I mean, the corruption, the corruption was enormous in Afghanistan. So there was still, <laughs> there was still a lot that, uh, that could have been done better or that, that could have still been addressed. But... Uh, I don't think anything was worse than than what's going on now. Hmm. Uh, so, j- just just so we can get it from the perspective of someone who's over there, why was the Taliban able to take back um, Afghanistan so easily and so hmm. quickly? Well, there there are a lot of a lot of theories. Some emotional things, like the Afghan army didn't fight hard enough. I mean, that's. And even even uh, President Biden said that in, in in some way, and I think that that was just really really a, a bad thing to say. I think uh, there were a lot of Afghan soldiers who who fought really hard and who died in that struggle to to defend their country and to just say that yeah they they're just not good fighters or they they didn't have the motivation. That's I think that was really excuse my French, but that was a crappy thing to say. Uh, I think. I mean, what the Americans did was they, they really invested a lot in, in building like a really good counterterrorism force and counterinsurgency force. Like they had specialized teams of, of Afghans who were really doing pretty well and, of course, supported by Americans and dropped off from, from American helicopters and, and all that. So so that was wonderful. But what they really didn't manage to do was to to build up an army that can maintain the logistics that you need to, to fight a war. So you, you can have the best troops in the field, but... 
but if they're not really supplied, yeah, <laughs> they're not going to fight for very long, and, and that's exactly what happened. So, I mean, that's just one of the one of the things, but I think it's one of the key things that happened is that the normal Afghan army, like the, the, the grunts on the ground, they and, and the logistics, which is probably the most important thing in warfighting is to get your logistics right. And this has been discussed uh, currently with uh, with that convoy in, in north of Kiev. It's it's just something that never really happened. So the the whole thing just fell apart. At least that's my take. Uh, there are many other takes out there. Well, I, if I could just add like one thing, like I think it was also they assumed sort of the self evidence of democracy, like that people would sort of. Uh, oh, we're having voting and then people would get registered to vote and get emotionally invested in the politicians mm. they've chosen. And then this whole magical process of like the dissemination of political power to the people would take over. But no, actually what wound up happening is you had this essentially a puppet government that like, yes, yes, Mr. <laughs> American man, whatever you say, I will do kind of popped in and like to the surprise of no one, the same thing that happened was it South Vietnam happened in Afghanistan. Like there was... Uh, a government which everyone accused of being the yes men of the Americans. Nobody was invested in the political system. Nobody particularly identified with this Afghanistan Afghanistan nation as conceived largely by Americans, right? And yeah. I think, like, more than the lack of logistics, more than those soldiers not being supported, like, if you don't have something to believe in, like, if you don't have something to die for, right, how are you going hmm. to how are you going to tell these men to go off and fight, right? Well, yeah, there, there's some truth to that, though. I would say that I think a lot of a lot of Afghans they weren't particularly married to any of the of the politicians in power at the time. But but what they did, a lot of them, anyways. But uh, obviously, a lot also not. But a lot of people did appreciate um, the the liberties that they had gained during this time the, uh, for for um, education for for women, for example. The, um, I mean, just the the you know the benefits of of uh, modernity and and the hospitals and and infrastructure and all that. I mean, things were in Afghanistan was uh, really improving at the time, and and a lot of people, I think, maybe didn't fight for their politicians, but they they fought for their country and and for for what they envisioned their country to be and and the identity that that comes with that um, and against the Afghanistan that would be and now is under the Taliban. In your opinion, though, was there a way it could have turned out differently? Was there a way where, like, maybe if the U.S. had, like, left, uh, like, remnants, like a 5,000 5, troop force, that they would, like, it would not have turned out the way it did? Or, or was it was this yeah, always I think going so. to happen? Okay, go ahead. Uh, I mean, in, it, there was only remnants of the Americans left. There were only a couple of thousand Americans left. Um, and and not just Americans, there were also still Europeans, uh, like European armies in Afghanistan, with small contingents. And I think yes, I think this this could have been maintained at a at a very low cost in in fortune and life, um, and it would have it would have increased security for for the West. I mean, now we we know <laughs> there's there's no question that there's Al Qaeda is back in Afghanistan. ISIS is uh, still uh, expanding its its foothold in Afghanistan. I mean, it would have been very much worth it uh, for for a lot of reasons, uh, including including security of the countries that are involved there. Um, but it it just 
I think really it, it boils down to American politics and in, in the United States. I think uh, the Afghanistan war was just seen as like an open wound that that has never really been closed. Even though, yeah, it, I think it wasn't. I think, I mean, the, the deployment there was not costing anything significantly and and was just beneficial. So yeah, I, I still think that the better thing would have been to to just continue. Mm. Well, unfortunately, they did not. And uh, it's one of those things, right? Like yes. it's, one of, it's one of those things that's terribly, terribly sad. Um, and like, and as as you should, when you talk about something ter ter terribly, terribly sad, you should talk about something that's also very terribly, terribly sad. So uh, <laughs> since you spent some time there, I'll ask you about it. Uh, what's what, what's going on in Ukraine, man? Yeah, well, that's that's another. Uh, honestly, I'm still I'm still in shock. I still can't really believe that this is going on. I mean, it's it's what almost ten days now uh, that this uh, aggressive war is is raging, and I still have a hard time wrapping my head around it. I mean, so the whole thing started. Uh, all right, so Ukraine Ukraine has been part of of the Russian Empire before, and then part of the Soviet Union. So, you know, there there are people in Russia who consider it to, to be their sort of country. But of course, Ukraine is. Uh, is after the collapse of the Soviet Union in, in 91, Ukraine became a sovereign nation. It has its own language, it has a distinct culture, uh, and Ukrainians consider themselves Ukrainians uh, and not Russians. That's uh, that's just how it is, or most anyways. Um, so, yeah, so, <laughs> um, so in 2014, uh, the, uh, the then Ukrainian president um, renounced or, or did, did not want to sign a uh, an agreement with the European Union to to form closer ties, not to become part of the European Union, but to form closer ties. And and a lot of people in Ukraine didn't didn't want any of that. They wanted to move closer to the European Union and to reject Moscow. But their president was uh, very close to Moscow. So so people started rising up. You had uh, large protests in the country. Um, in the end, the president was removed from power by the people. Uh, and at the same time, in the east of the Ukraine, where you have a lot of Russian speakers and, and people that have much closer ties with Russia and, and also much more important business ties with Russia, they stood up and said, well, if Ukraine doesn't want to be part of or, or close to Moscow, then we're doing our own thing and we're going to, you know, part with Ukraine and, and start our own satellite states that are that are uh, directed towards towards Russia. And at the same time, Russia invaded uh, Crimea and annexed it um, because they wanted to bless you, send a strong sign. Now, that has been going on for now, what is it, eight years? Uh, eight years, for eight years, uh, Ukraine has been trying to 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 win back these these insurgent states and to, to reintegrate them into Ukraine. And for eight years, Russia, even though they denounced it or deny it, sorry, um, Russia has, uh, in, in some capacity or other, supported these states, or well, statelets, um, and and not too much happened over that time, other than, of course, the awful fighting. Um, uh, but Putin is, is of the opinion that uh, Ukraine is moving dangerously close to to NATO, uh, and and therefore decided to put an end to it and uh, sent his army in. So that's that's what's happening now. The, uh, Putin is basically, in some way or another, trying to to 
turn Ukraine's head from Europe to or from the EU back to back to Moscow. That's that's sort of the idea now. How exactly he hopes that that will happen, uh, considering the atrocities that his army is committing in Ukraine, is uh, not something that uh, I really understand. Um, it, it really seems to have the opposite effect. I mean, NATO is is moving so much closer together. The EU, uh, for the first time ever, is agreeing on, on things in one meeting like this, like big things. Um, everybody's coming together, the whole, or almost the whole world is um, uniting. Recently, the, the UN General Assembly had a vote to, to um, criticize Russia's invasion. And Russia had only four friends that voted against that, that uh, General Assembly resolution. Uh, the likes of uh, North Korea, Syria, um, uh, Eritrea, and uh, what was the last one? Oh yeah, Belarus. So you know, it's a distinguished list, uh, I would say. Um, so yeah, the support for the Russia world has world, been yeah. really <laughs> the Russian support has been really uh, very very poor, or support to Russia. In this, and uh, yeah, I think it, it really all backfires. If you if you speak to Ukrainians, if you listen to Ukrainians, they're very very defiant. Um, I mean, people are people are going to the streets. Civilians with Ukrainian flags are going to the streets and standing in the path of tanks to stop them from entering their villages and their cities. Um, I think by so far, 80,000 Ukrainians have uh, have come from foreign countries where they lived in safety to go back home to fight in Ukraine to defend their homeland. I mean, that sort of thing, like how how exactly Putin is, is trying to get Ukraine back in line, I don't know. The, this this doesn't seem to be the right way. Not not to me anyways. Well I, I think I think partly it might have been because of Afghanistan man. Like um like imagine hmm. right like he if he viewed Taliban and Ukraine similarly at least in terms of strategic importance like well, okay, obviously from the perspective of Russia, but probably he used um, uh, Afghanistan as a kind of example of what might happen if he invaded, like Mohammed Karzai, like the moment that hmm. uh, the, the 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 forces were headed to to Kabul, the capital of of Afghanistan, the Taliban forces, he was already gone. Like <laughs> you know, he was already in like what what states sheltered him. Yeah, that's <laughs> no, Ashraf Ghani, mate. That's not Karzai was his uh, like pre predecessor. Oh, sorry, uh, sorry, Ashraf Ghani. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, um, yeah. I think he went to uh, one of the Gulf states. Uh, I'm not really sure right now. Yeah, yeah. That that was uh, maybe not uh, an exercise in bravery. Although one should say that uh, the last time the Taliban entered Kabul, um, the then president of Afghanistan uh, met a rather ugly fate. Um, being beaten to death and then hanged from a lamppost. So I do, I do get the notion. <laughs> <laughs> You're horrible uh, for laughing yeah. at that, and so am I. Um, no, but I think I think uh, Putin probably thought that maybe the same thing would happen. Like you know, like he's just hmm. going to get asylum and he's going to leave, and then I can just take it back. Like that was his best case scenario. Playing towards that, obviously, that's not what happened. Yeah. One of the funniest blurbs, though, was um, when the Taliban came out and like condemned Rush the Russian invasion. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, th those are really, yeah. Th I mean, it's really hard to to not laugh about these these sorts of things. I mean, 
you know, the, the stuff the Taliban has been doing and is doing on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, at least, at least uh, they're moving closer towards the international community, I guess, at least with statements like that. <laughs> But um, I guess I guess now the the so the I think I think it's very clear, right? That like this act by Russia, right, is very much uh like is very much the blame can very much fall in the lap of uh Putin, right? But I guess the and this is the more nuanced and difficult to articulate uh, a que a question which the response is more difficult to articulate. What fault does NATO uh the West, or however you might define it, bear, right? Maybe let's hmm. say specifically NATO, just so we can restrict hmm. the scope. Yeah. Sure. Well, I mean, to be honest, in terms of like international politics, I think it's, it's sometimes a bit difficult to use terms like fault. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to stay away from these things because it's, uh, it's, yeah, it just goes to more the, the emotional side of things for us. I'm trying to, um, just look at it as objectively as, as possible, which is pretty difficult in, in times of civilian atrocities. But anyways, uh, yeah, I mean, I understand, and I haven't really engaged in that, but I understand that there are a lot of people in the Philippines right now in certain political camps who are who are also supporting Russia, and, and there are a lot of claims about uh, Ukraine or, or NATO um, moving eastward and, and that Russia is just defending itself, which to me is... I just really find it difficult to comprehend this argument or what's what's going on there. I mean, Ukraine, since 1991, is a sovereign nation. And for anybody to say that the sovereign nation should, you know, be governed in accordance with the whims of its more powerful neighbor, I mean, for a Filipino to say that, to me, it's, it's just something I, I cannot really comprehend. I mean, it's like saying, yeah, we should do what, let's say, China or what the Americans tell us because because they're more powerful and their interests are therefore more important. That, I don't think any Filipino would think along these lines. I hope not anyways. So I'm wondering how, how people in the Philippines can, can support this line of argument when it comes to another country. It's just, it's, it's, yeah, I, I don't even have words for that. That's just utterly laughable. So, yes, uh, I understand that, that uh, people are saying uh, NATO is moving eastward and, and this was never agreed. First of all, NATO isn't moving anywhere. Uh, there are sovereign countries that approach NATO, not the other way around. Sovereign countries approach NATO and say, hey, we we want to be part of your alliance. We, we feel that that we belong to to this group of people, we have uh, this outlook on on life. Uh, so these democratic countries um, are then, if if they meet the conditions, and these conditions are very high, it's about things like um, also corruption issues, and that's one of the reasons why Ukraine uh, has not yet been uh, allowed into NATO was because they they hadn't fully fixed their house, and, and there were still things that that are a lot of things uh, that the NATO had issues with. So these countries, they come to NATO and they say, we, we want to be part of your alliance. We feel like we're part of the West. Sovereign countries. So what, what is the NATO policy? NATO isn't pushing Estonia or, or, or any country to become part of NATO. These countries decide that they want to, they want to look towards the West and not towards the East. I, 
honestly don't see how how that is NATO's fault. Now there's the story that back in was it ninety ninety one um nineteen ninety one uh there was there were these two plus four talks after the dissolution of the of the Soviet Union, where where Western powers have um, verbally in a back room agreed with uh, well then Russia to to stop the expansion of NATO towards the east. Now you're a lawyer, uh, so you know this better than me. But you know in a democracy where leaders change every every few years, if there's something really important that needs to be agreed between two states. You don't do it in a back room verbally with a handshake. That's just not how how countries set standards and norms of behavior between them. That's that is just not a thing. Um, so, so for people to argue, well, the, in 1991 uh, they they spoke about that and they said this or that. Uh, that's not how you that's not how you make a contract. That's not how you make a deal. You you sit down and you write the things that are important on paper and then you sign that paper together and then it's a thing. Um, we don't even know if this conversation ever happened because there's no record of it. Um, and even if it happened, it has, it, it does not matter because no country has signed anything. So I, yeah, to, to me, I, I really have a hard time to put the, the blame in, in to, to, for the situation in, in a different court than in Putin's, honestly. Well, so let me just let me just respond like really quickly. And this is going to be like a dissection of like a few things that I saw that I want to comment on. Um, Please. Yeah, the first is that I think so. I think I think we have to acknowledge uh, that the, the these Filipinos who like say that Russia can do this invasion. Um, <laughs> they are morons. <laughs> but first, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's an excusable kind of idiocy because first place. We, we're kind of cheap seat. We're in the cheap seats, relatively speaking, right? Because we're so far removed from the conflict. And I think second to that, uh, I think the Philippines particularly, because we do not share a border with another state, right? Geopolitically, we're, we're a bit infant-like, you know? Like, we, we, we really don't understand that, oh, you know, the dynamics between two states really change by a lot when they have a shared border and a shared history together, right? And so I think I'm almost inclined to forgive people for stupid statements like that. And I thank God that there are really like professional diplomats that formulate the opinions of the state, right? Because if we were to be led by the opinion of the common man in the Philippines, we would be going to war every other week. You know what I mean? Uh, Fair uh, enough. Yeah. But I guess, I guess you said the implicit, the implicit, uh, assertion of a statement like yours a while ago is that you don't want to acknowledge that Russia should be entitled to any kind of sphere of influence, right? So um, there are certain geopolitical considerations that necessitate, I think, an acknowledgement of the power of Russia, right? I think the, the reason why the United Nations exists today is because of the concession that Russia made that it exists, right? Because being such a globally dominant power, uh, they, you know, the, you know, it's the reason why they have veto and they're a permanent member of the Security Council is precisely because of an acknowledgement that their opinion in any side of a conflict was always going to matter. If not by virtue of like any strategic or military might, then by virtue of the fact that they have like one of the largest stockpiles of nukes also. Right. So I think I think it's very important that while, of course, we acknowledge that what Putin did was wrong, that there are geopolitical considerations that might have been uh, taken better and i guess 
this takes me to my next point, which is uh, there's actually that, that YouTube channel, which I mentioned a while ago, Carefree Wandering. Just, uh, I'll probably put it in the description of this episode. Uh, he outlined something called the pariah principle. And the pariah principle was like a really interesting a re-articulation of the way the West has chosen to approach a man like Putin as deplorable as he is, right? And so they essentially kind of dealt with him at arm's length, keeping him away with sanctions and like essentially preventing any kind of real thorough integration with the West and to let the Western values kind of reach Russia. And they treated him as a pariah. And the... Assumpt, or rather the, the logical conclusion of such an approach to a guy like Putin was uh, that it made it so that because you portrayed him for so long at this point now, decades, as an oppositor to the West, right? That conflict with Russia was basically inevitable because you've turned him into such a wretched figure. You know what I mean? And that perhaps there was a way where you could have still placated his ego. Because I think even the high-level technocrats in Russia who are in charge of like security affairs were against a war or any action like this. And I think, and if I can be frank, like if they had, you know, just coaxed his ego a little bit better, I, like the psychology of one man is, I don't think, such a large uh, hurdle for a complicated Western democracy with all the intellectuals it has at its disposal to hurdle. You know what I mean? Uh, okay. To your last point, I, I think um, I think this is probably not the way I would put it. Uh, I think Putin has done a lot to make himself a pariah rather than being made a pariah. I mean, the the op <clears throat> the um, critics that he had imprisoned or killed the 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 opposition politicians uh, or, or journalists that that just disappeared overnight uh, and, and were found in some ditch. I mean, I think it is very, very difficult for a Western leader who also has to answer to their constituents to, to treat Putin like one of ours or to, to treat Putin like uh, nothing's going on. Um, so he, he maneuvered himself into this position to a large extent, I believe, by himself. And, uh, and I find it, yeah, yeah. You could argue. I mean, people like Donald Trump have have done that. They have, at least, at least in public, they have uh, been very friendly with uh, Putin. I don't think it really m made any difference. I don't think it changed anything really. Um, Putin, I think, has has one goal, and and that is to restore the, to to restore Russia to its old glory, and um, he will he will take whatever way is. Uh, necessary or, or available to him to do that so i don't i don't think there was as much the west could have done um as as maybe other people would think i, th I think this was uh, to a large part really what putin's doing and and what he thinks is right and i i don't really think that too many russians are sharing that notion i mean you, you see the thing is putin when he came to power after boris Yeltsin, he really brought a lot of prosperity to Russia. I mean, he, he really changed the country. I mean, in the 90s, Russia was, I mean, the, the oligarchs were stealing all the resources and, and the, the common man was, was pretty much down in the, in the ditches. And then Putin came along and he really changed things and he gave Russians uh, more, more confidence to, to go about things. And he did a lot of things that, that were very popular in Russia. So, I mean, there's credit where credit is due. Um, but 
he now seems to be in in his vision of of going even further he he seems to be uh, crushing the plane crashing the plane i'm sorry and and uh and and that's all because of his uh, his vision or his ambition um i think much more so than than the actions of the west mm. so uh i guess i guess one of the questions that i guess i should ask now because you're you're german background um Germany came out on the side of NATO like that was a surprise because you know uh, to a certain extent German high-ranking German politicians are beholden to Russian interests uh, you can elaborate on that I think better than I can <laughs> I can't even remember the guy's name uh, and also uh, you you rely on Russia to supply a large amount of the gas that keeps the heat on during the mm. winter right and so like what feelings or what thoughts does it engender in you that Germany is coming out essentially on this on on one side hmm. of a military conflict yeah uh i'm i'm well coming out on one side we're, we're supplying ukraine with weapons we're not fighting in ukraine we're not going to send uh german soldiers to ukraine uh so we're, we're coming out rather verbally but not not merely symbolically uh i, I would say i mean the there was this big mockery going on uh, before the invasion started uh when, when Ukraine asked for German German support and Germany sent 5,000 uh, army helmets, uh, that that was uh, yeah that was of course uh, subject to international ridicule. And at the time, I thought that was the right thing to do. I mean, you you don't want to you don't want to send weapons into into such a heated situation, uh, and most Germans did as well. Uh, but the Russian invasion of Ukraine, of course, changed a thing or two. Uh, now the vast majority of Germans are for German support and in, in terms of uh, delivering weapons to Ukraine and, and so am I. Um, so I'm, I think by and large, I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite astonished and, and proud of the way the German government is handling the situation. Um, yeah, I think they're doing the right thing because, you know, at the end of the day, yes, we're, we're reliant on Russian gas. Um, this will get more expensive. Uh, there, there might be, problems in the future. Um, Germany, Germans are already bracing for higher prices. Germans are bracing for, for higher inflation and, and Europeans in general. Um, but I mean, in such a situation of freedom, I mean, this, this sounds awfully like Bush, but freedom just comes at a price. And, and, um, if we sit back and, and relax and, and wait, um, for the Ukrainians to fight it out and to, to try to appease Putin, I mean, you know, this this could be a, a short term um, a short in the short term it could be very beneficial but in the long term that that could uh, erode the European system as it is right now so I think yeah now is the time to to show where you stand and, and Germany is doing that and and Europe and and NATO and uh, um yeah I think it's the right thing to do so yeah, I mean I guess I guess you know we were expecting that uh, you know be the most comedic thing to happen would be like Germany goes full on World War II and then does a crack cocaine fueled blitzkrieg into Ukraine. <laughs> but that's probably not going to happen because of the utterly wretched state of geopolitics. You know, does not permit humorous uh, events like that to occur. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, the uh, nuclear weapons might be uh, one of the bigger issues in, in such a scenario. So no, I don't think that will happen. I sure as hell don't hope that it will happen. But what what fascinates me, uh, you might remember this back in the Trump years, 
Trump was lambasting Germany for for its low defense spendings. You know, because we're supposed to like every every NATO member is supposed to spend two percent of their GDP, which is quite a significant amount of money if you think about it um, mean? on defense. Doesn't, like doesn't like the U.S. spend like twenty or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I guess, but then uh, the, I mean the U.S. is a, a bit of a special kind of unicorn, um, which you know it's great. I mean that's 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 fine. But you know the the funny thing was when when Trump was uh, all up in arms about this whole thing, uh, the European NATO partners they were far less adamant about this whole German defense spending. They're <laughs> <And>, uh, <laughs> like, you know, you do your thing. It's it's all good. So, and I did it didn't surprise me at all. I mean Germany had. Uh, had been uh, fairly actively involved in two world wars. Uh, Germany had, uh, like, is, is always at the center of every European war uh, sooner or later because um, because of its geographic position uh, in the center of Europe. And so it really surprised me when, when the German chancellor came out a few days ago and said that Germany is going to more than double its defense spending, add another $100 billion to the defense budget. I mean, nobody was... Nobody was saying anything. I mean, yeah, in Germany, of course, people were, well, quite astonished. But but the, I was wondering like how the rest of Europe would react to that, and and everybody seemed fine because I think at the moment we just have to realize that there's an existential threat to to the European system and to our our way of life going on. Um, so yeah, these are extraordinary circumstances. Mm. It's one of those weird things because, you know, like, um, I guess I, I remember the, the comic of the Watchmen where, you know, uh, mm -hmm. they manufactured, the, well, spoiler if you haven't read the Watchmen, but like, I mean, guys, come on. I think it's been like 30 years. Uh, <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they ma essentially manufactured an existential threat, right? Yeah. Uh, to humanity to try to neutralize the Cold War. That was the that was the plan of the big bad. Like so, it was a Cold War scenario. But instead, some super intelligent guy manufactured an alien that made everyone afraid that uh, you know this alien would be able to kill, uh, to come back and kill people, right? And so, I guess the quandary now is um, if 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 Germany decides to spend all that money. And Russia as a threat goes away. I mean, like maybe the Rush, maybe the German uh, chancellor is just going to be like, eh, you know, we already have all these guns. Might as well invade Poland. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and that that is, uh, I mean, as funny as it sounds, and it, it sounds funny to to modern ears, but I think that is for sure something that um, is uh, at the back of uh, some some people's minds, at least uh, outside of Germany. Um, I. Uh, I cannot fathom, uh, fathom a, a way or a scenario where that might actually play out. I think the the German mind has been successfully uh, pacified, fortunately. Uh, I don't think I have to add that over the past uh, 80 or so years, and uh, nobody in Germany would entertain such ideas. And not, not even, honestly, not even the most right-wing nutcases are, are speaking while or suggesting these things. So, yeah. I'd, I think Europe wouldn't have to be worried about that, but I would understand if they were, because I mean, geography doesn't change, and and uh, you know the the situation. <laughs> yeah, I guess, but yeah, the the situation. I mean, in some ways, it has changed a lot. The, the 
minds of the people have changed a lot, and, and European integration has changed a lot. But um, but there are some geopolitical realities uh, that that haven't and, and that won't and that can't because because of the geography of of the continent and because of the the cultures and the the nations that occupied. So yeah, it's it's definitely something to to wonder about, and I just hope that once in whatever fashion this will happen, but once once this uh, security threat uh, you know goes away. Uh, that that then uh, <laughs> the defense spendings will be adjusted to to the old normal to to pre-war um, size and and uh, yeah I think other Europeans hope that too. Nah, you know you should just solve all of your issues by like man-to-man combat. You know, <laughs> just, <laughs> just you pick a champion and then. Uh... <laughs> mm, yeah, we could try that. I mean, Putin was a very yeah. He had some pictures in which he looks fairly terrifying but now I don't know what happened he, he's kind of bloated now and very very odd looking so I mean, maybe maybe we could uh, send Boris Johnson and he, he seems like a dirty guy <laughs> <laughs> no but you know actually it's one of the funnier things to come out of this whole conflict they actually stripped Vladimir Putin of his um, black belt in judo and I'm like like that's not how that works like he does he still knows how to do this stuff but <laughs> I think they stripped him of the, his pre, his honorary presidency of the international judo body, or whatever. No, but uh, I, I think not... I think they removed his his black belt rank also because I think he was a fourth, oh really? I think he was a fourth dan black belt, and so like they refused to acknowledge the credential anymore. Like, I'm like, <laughs> All right, you are no longer a master. <laughs> <laughs> that must have stung. No, it... yeah, that, but I mean. Speaking about speaking about these sanctions, that's that's really something that I mean, as as much as I marvel at this, like the international community coming together and like punishing punishing Putin, but it's just the, I mean the important thing that we somehow have to try to communicate is that that this is that like nobody has a problem with the Russian people and and I mean there's there are Russians who are suffering from this war, there there are Russians who have to fight this war against against their intentions, um, and and. Even the Russian people who who might be undecided or even for this war, they they only have access to very very limited information. So, and, and that's just one thing I'm worried about with all these sanctions is that Russians might feel like the world is uniting against them, and and uh, because really I think the world has has no issue with the Russian people. It's 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 with their leadership, particularly with their president, that um, the world has I think very legitimate issues with. But these sanctions hit normal people, you know. I mean, not the not the black belt uh, so much, but uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, IKEA is closing all their stores in, in Russia. Uh, I think Disney stops well, distributing their movies in, in Russia and all that. And it's just, I don't know if if that will really if that will really get uh, get the point across. Yeah, but it's, it's or, one of, or it's that one of might those antagonize things, people. It's one of those things, though. Like like uh, like it's one of those soft power assertions that doesn't cost lives of course like the economic hmm. cost probably does take some lives right but you know they're not they're not actual flesh and but blood lives like we're talking yeah. about economic pro- productivity that's lost um sanctions yeah. in like a neoliberal world like i think i think like for me personally uh it feels like the ethic the most ethical response and it's strategic too because it does it's 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 an action that hurts but definitely does not provoke a nuclear response you know what i mean Hmm. And I think the end goal of sanctions is always regime change, right? Like it's to 
It's to create in the minds of a people the incredible ineptitude and impress upon them the inability of the government to get the world on their side. And I think in this case, like more than in other cases, like I, I, I do find some instances in which sanctions are used to be objectionable. But in this particular case where something was done and it was so obviously objectionable that sanctions are the proper remedy. And I, of course, I commiserate with the Russian hmm. people and I do not want someone's life savings, which is denominated in rubles to lose half of its value in the span of 10 days. I, I don't. Right. But how else are you going to get them to like, hey, like you got to get the guy out like we and in, in, in this time, more than any other time, we really are talking about one guy. Right. Don't, I mean, yeah. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, there, there are a couple of uh, people in, in the leadership that well, I, I wouldn't really want to have dinner with. But uh, the, the thing is, I mean, OK, I, I haven't studied sanctions to to too much detail. But if you look at I mean, Iran has been under sanctions and or did the um, Iranian regime since 1979 has been on, under sanctions since pretty much then. That's that's what now. Help me, 40, 43 years mm. um, that they have been under heavy sanctions. Iraq in the 90s has been under heavy sanctions. Um, um, Syria is still under heavy sanctions. I mean, the, the leader of Iraq was deposed, but not through sanctions. Um, and then if, if you look at some kind of, like look at Japan or, or Germany, they were, they were, their cities were bombed to ashes and, and the only effect it had, and the American army admitted that afterwards, was that uh, the people moved together closer and, and uh, developed, developed deeper ties with their leadership because they had this notion of now it's us against the rest of the world or it's us against them. So we have to, we have to hold together even closer. Uh, I'm, I'm worried that this sort of effect would, uh, that, I mean, that could have lasting damages between the Russia and European or Russia Western relationship. That's, that's my worry. Mm. Well, I, I guess like just to differentiate some of the examples that are being used, like just, just like, like just to take Iran, for example, right? Like Iran, like they have a legitimate grievance with the United States, right? Like that they were essentially had regime change forced upon them. Right. Um, what, what are the other examples that you mentioned? Well, the, I think, <laughs> I think the, the story about regime change in, in Iran is also one that is uh, belabored a lot, but I think the, the whole, the whole thing with, um, uh, I forgot the, the name of the Iranian president. Uh, I mean, it played out a little, a little different. There's a, there's a very good, um, article in, in foreign affairs. I'll, I'll share that with you that, uh, really dissects what, what went down, um, with, uh, his name is on the tip of my tongue, but, uh, anyways, uh, so yeah, I think, I think it was Rouhani? a little more complicated than, no, 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 no. Um, something with more, uh, this is bugging me, but it's okay. <laughs> but go ahead, go ahead. No, no, you were saying about these other countries. No, but yeah, so I'm just saying that like more than those other instances that you outline where there is a legitimate rallying point, you know, like, hmm. um, Venezuela, um, uh, Iraq, uh, Iran, you know, there's like a real ideological difference that exists in the, hmm. in the people, right? And in that case, right, you do know, you do yourself 
no favors by imposing sanctions because the political opinion that creates the conflict permeates the people and only in, in that case you only steal the people's resolve but in this mm. case we have a you have a situation similar to world war ii where you know the blame for the conflict really largely falls on the shoulders of one man right and i think that in this case like sanctions are probably the most appropriate response and are a lot more effectively applied in this case as opposed to the other cases that you mentioned hmm. right that, 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 that probably yeah. i hope you're right brother i hope you're right uh, <laughs> i don't know time will tell i guess yeah um yeah i <laughs> i hope it is that <laughs> okay well, uh, well this is this is usually the, the we've been talking for over two hours now and uh, you know as we usually do uh so i think i think the structure in the conversation yeah. was, was, <laughs> helped us not have this be a five-hour podcast uh, but <laughs> um, what, what, then this is the this is the question I usually cap the podcast with, Marcus. Uh, mm-hmm. What are you going to be doing in five years, man? <laughs> uh, good question. Um, I think I do not want to um, be too much in uh, living in like uh, these sort of. Uh, well, I'm not going to repeat the former president, but uh, let's say um, rather conflicted. Uh, places because um i mean I'm, I'm married now for for about a week and i'm going to uh, well hopefully in five years i will have a little family um so so i think i would uh, i would much rather work um in, in a little more um well a place where you would uh, that you'd think of when talking about raising children uh, let's put it that way um so definitely I, not I afghanistan can... <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really see uh, developing in, in that sort of direction. Yeah, like the country, unfortunately. Well, if you had all um, boys, if you had all boys. <laughs> yeah, let's let's not go down that rabbit hole, man. <laughs> I hear property values are very cheap. <laughs> <laughs> You're the devil. Yeah, no, no, maybe, no, I'm hoping that I can, um, like, I, I love my organization, I love working in the sector, and, uh, like, I hope I could uh, work um, either, like, more with donors, more on the programmatic uh, side, rather than the operational side of things, um, hopefully, in one day in, in a, an HQ position, or, I mean, or with another organization in, in either that sector or, or related sectors, I mean, there's so much wonderful work being done in, in development and stuff. And I mean, there's a lot of, you know, this working with donors, there's a lot of dull stuff and, and like um, regulations and and um, memorandas and, and all that sort of stuff. But really, I mean, it it is also a lot of fun to to work these things out. It's probably more of what a lawyer does than, than what a aid worker does. But uh, yeah, I, I enjoy it. Um, the, the little that I've peeked behind that curtain anyways. And um, I hope that I can do more in, in that regard and maybe in, in a different place Yeah, in five years. Okay. And on Hopefully. that point, Marcus, thank you for coming on my podcast. Ravi, it's been a pleasure as always. And we'll do that soon again with a beer. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> <laughs>